it's like a major plot point. Like it's building to this, and it's a non-event. It doesn't matter. Yeah, kind of like the whole movie. Well, it, I I probably am going to to be the wild card of, of maybe liking this this more. I definitely liked it more than I was expecting to. multi-part superhero epic from the comfort of your couch laptop and or mobile device isn't everything a streaming multi-part superhero epic these days yes but i'm talking specifically about the the justice league hashtag release the snyder cut now two hours longer and with a colder color palette than the joss whedon thing yeah you know actually after leaving the movie following the death of his daughter and the usual creative differences warner media gave a director zach snyder uh, they gave him 70 million dollars to finish his dark and edgy version for dc's justice league anyone see the original 2017 joss whedon theatrical release you know as much as i want to forget that i did like all the quips well if there's one thing you can expect from joss whedon it's quips yes and workplace bullying but the original justice league movie released before whedon got me too and i saw it before i finally realized that i didn't need to watch every superhero thing on the big and small screen alike I don't think I can ever get those hours of my life back. I'm still trying to forget it. It was a bit of a Franken movie. So with Whedon out of favor and his JLA movie having officially tanked and with a Snyder cut becoming a sort of urban legend due to online online fanboy clamoring. I said online. That's not good. Due to online <laughs> fanboy clamoring. What did Warner Media have to lose by tossing some money at Snyder and asking if he wanted to finish up what he started? And the result is four fucking hours of exposition and explosion. I'm Roman Segel. I'm Ryan Joe. And we're two dudes who won't be satisfied until Ryan Reynolds is CGI'd back into the Justice League. Release the Reynolds cut. So, if you haven't figured it out, this week uh, we're talking about Zack Snyder's Justice League, HBO Max's second attempt to drive more subscriptions with superheroes. And uh, joining us is friend of the pod, Chandler Clang Smith, who you might remember from our Marvel Man episode last year. Hey, Chandler. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show. So I really wanted uh, you back because you've always had interesting thoughts about Zack Snyder. He's a director you love when he's at his best. Uh, You've even compared him to Stanley Kubrick, but he's so rarely at his best. uh, You always seem deeply, deeply disappointed in him. So how would you describe good Zack Snyder? Yeah, when is he at his best? Explain. Yeah, so uh, my first exposure to Zack Snyder's directing was uh, in Watchmen, the theatrical release version, Um, you know, when it came out. It was a situation where I didn't have any knowledge of the source material going in. I just went with a group of friends, and um, I was really blown away by it. And I actually thought a little bit about that Kubrick comparison that I've made, because I was like, what are the aspects of Zack Snyder that remind me of Kubrick? So, um, yeah, like... uh, One thing about his work is that I think at its best, it can feel really novelistic. Um, Not only are his movies really long, but they're really dense. And that's something that I I see in Kubrick's stuff too, where a lot of information will be communicated more visually and slowly than is absolutely necessary to advance the story. Um, But that sort of ties into the second thing that reminds me of Kubrick about him, again, at his best which is his iconic image making. Um, You know, he seems like he's really interested in the composition of shots that he kind of wants to create things on screen that feel like they could be a tattoo or a meme or, um, you know, 
a sort of an after image that you still see when you close your eyes. And I think at his very best, um, which I, I, I am a really big fan of Watchmen, and something that I really like about that movie is that I think that you have this really like iconic, over-the-top image making that's punctuated and interrogated by the story content. Um, that you know we're kind of seeing these characters as these larger-than-life god figures, but then we're also, you know, finding out about their their terrible flaws, uh, you know, unforgivable things that they've done, and even like uh, you know small and petty aspects of them, like uh, Doctor Manhattan's you know romantic relationships, for example. And I think that that pairing ends up creating this really interesting friction for me. Um, that yeah, that that feels intentional. Um, I think that where I often come to question that, though, is that Zack Snyder applies that same, like, you know, larger than life um, grandeur to pretty much everything that he depicts, whether that's like, you know, that children's movie about the uh, the battle owls or, um, you know, Sucker Punch, which I thought was was pretty incoherent. Um, and I think that that can sometimes make it feel like he doesn't really know how to do anything other than that, that myth-making. Um, and that's the thing that really separates him from me from someone like Kubrick, where Kubrick applies that to, you know, the monolith or the Overlook Hotel or like these, you know, these, these things that are inherently complicated, inherently inspire, um, you know, a, a nuanced and uneasy response. Like Zack Snyder sometimes applies that same kind of a, that same kind of, you know, grandeur and feeling of the sublime to stuff that's just, uh, you know, simplistic to the the point of being intellectually insulting, maybe. Well, so, well, um, yeah. yeah I mean, but to, to his credit, like the, the biggest difference before the movies, right, between the mm -hmm. modern approach to DC's heroes and Marvel's heroes is DC has said, like, these are titans. This is, you know, the yeah. strongest man ever, the world's greatest detective, the fastest man alive, right? Like, these are absolute almost Greek-like titans, whereas Marvel is the everyman. It's Peter Parker. It's, you know, Logan, so on and so forth. So uh, to be fair, when Snyder did the first DC movie that he did, um, which was Man of Steel, after Chris Nolan's, uh, Chris Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, it felt like this was a nice handing of the baton. And mm -hmm. I think the frustrating thing about him and it's so interesting your perspective and it sounds like neither of you guys saw the original cut of justice league uh, which was the franken movie with whedon taking over for snyder but between Watchmen and all of his uh dc movies i don't think snyder cares about these characters and what makes them tick he cares about this is gonna this is going to be a little reductive it, he cares about what he wants to do with these characters never mind the baggage that comes with them and as a result, a couple things happen, and we kind of shit on this in like obscure reference to him when we were talking about some other comics we were reading uh, about Superman. I don't think Snyder gets these characters. He kind, I mean, he gets them as myths, and that's about it. Um, and it it, get, it gets I, frustrating. I I mean, I, you know, I mean, there is a as you kind of were mentioning, the DC characters are very very gods. Um, they're gods. They're god tier, right? And ex with the exception of Batman. Um, you know, he's actually, but he, but he, but he represents the pinnacle of manness or, of, of manner, uh, of manner. I mean, of he, capitalism? He, he, yeah, he can sometimes, but he, there, what's, there's your more there's more what's your superpower? I'm rich. There, I'm rich, but there's more variability with Batman and that character is open to more interpretations that other writers have, have, you know, have been able to do very creative things that aren't always the same thing with Batman. So, but uh, overlooking Batman, 
I forgot there was, it was either Warren Ellis or Grant Morrison who said that Superman is very, very hard to write because he can do anything. He doesn't really have much of a personality. Um, and it's hard to create stories that are both kind of entertaining and poppy, but also create, um, but, but also, you know, kind of embrace the ridiculousness of that character while also making it feel epic. Um, and so it's very hard to kind of straddle that line with that specific character. And I would put probably Wonder Woman in that same category because she's pretty much God tier as well. There's not a lot of room, I don't think, with these superheroes to play with their with their personalities because unlike the Marvel superheroes and unlike ba- and unlike Batman, they tend not to have personalities. They're just uh, okay, kind of- I this is where this is where the supporting cast matters. And again, we're, I think Whedon with four hours, not Whedon with two hours, um, can make it work. Cyborg's relationship with his dad, Barry's relationship with his dad, Superman's relationship mm. with Lois, uh, Bruce's relationship with Alfred. It can work if you do it right. And sometimes Snyder does. And honestly, the thing that makes Justice League work, and you know, in a lot of uh, the things we've run, you've been shorthanding short calling them JLA, which is Justice League of America, the comic book. When you show the interplay with these titans as kind of like office coworkers, <laughs> like ribbing each other, which is something Whedon masterfully did in some of his cut of the movie, which again, you guys didn't see, so it's kind of hard to make this comparison. But I don't have a belief that these guys have any reason to be together other than the world is ending. That sounds like- so I actually. Yeah, I actually not having, you know, I don't have the history that you guys do with the comics and I haven't seen the Joss Whedon movie, but what this really reminded me of, um, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, was the Lord of the Rings, Um, you know, where I even said at one point when, um, you know, I was watching the movie with my partner, like, you know, like I was thinking of that, like, you know, but what about fighting alongside a friend kind of thing, you know, like it it kind of had that feeling of like, you know, oh, the... uh, you know, the Amazons, the Atlanteans and and the humans are, you know, kind of have these deep seated differences, but they set them aside because of this uh, extinction level right, event right. that's like threatened. Um, and I actually kind of think that that works. Um, that might not be true to the original way that the story was told, but it was something that I bought into. I mean, it made me think also of like, a, you know, the allies in World War II or something like that. Um, so, that, yeah, just a, to throw a, that out a, there. That's a really interesting take. And to be clear, like the, the Joss Whedon movie was pretty terrible. Like I remember walking out of the theater being like, and again, because say what you will about Zack Snyder, um, Chandler, you're night. I agree with 99% of what you're saying about him. When he's good, he's really good. It looks great. It feels mythic. That's not who Joss Whedon is. So it felt like the worst person who could pick up the movie and take over. Uh, the only analogy in kind of superhero movies I can think of is like when James Gunn got Me Too'd out of um, Guardians of the Galaxy mm-hmm. for some stuff he said on Twitter years ago. Okay, Mar- Marvel Disney said they were going to fire James Gunn. So they brought in Taika Watiti. That's literally who was being like mm-hmm. rumored to take over. I was like, okay, it sucks we don't get to see James Gunn finishing his like trilogy, but man, Taika Watiti has a similar sensibility. For and so that's what made the original cut so jarring and so weird because it's two directors who have dramatically different sensibilities kind of bringing it together. And so, I, so all I want to yeah. say is I'm not defending the previous cut, um, but it's it was hard to not watch this movie comparing it to what was lost and even like a lot of the reviews like by the onion av club and vulture and other people are like yeah wow 
this is a very different take. And I guess it's good that he, we get to see what his take was. I guess my, my issue with the epicness of Zack Snyder, and I will say, like, like when he is, like, like when the superheroes are getting together, when they're doing the action sequences, um, you feel it. I mean, you, you almost feel it in your chest. I mean, he's that good of a filmmaker, but also, you know. Those banging music cues, yeah. he's so good with music cues. I love that. Yeah. yeah, to the extent where it becomes parodic, like when you have Aquaman heading out to the dock with his shirt off and it's kind of in slow motion and it's a music video with Jason Momoa. Or... The whole, okay, the whole thing was a music video or a video game, like, you know, interplay sequence. It Yeah. Well, I just remember like when the janitor, there's a scene where the janitor starts mopping and the mop touches the floor and it goes boom. And you're just like, dude, <laughs> he's just, he's just cleaning up the floor, man. So, you know, so, so, I mean, it's, it's, I, it's Chandler, I was talking about like what Mark Twain said about James Fenimore Cooper, where it's always these trumpets kind of coming and the, the generals are always coming no matter what the, what the situation is. And Zack Snyder kind of feels the same way where he doesn't quite know where to pull back. Um, and because everything feels epic, it, it often kind of skirts parody or even crosses into parody without it even knowing it's parody. Um, and that's that's. Yeah, I had moments like that for sure in this movie. But and, yeah, and, 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 then, and then the other thing is that um, the story is fundamentally really. It's really dumb. I mean. It's it's run of the mill almost feels kind of mundane, right? There's a bad guy. They're gonna the there's they he's gonna take over the earth. The first two hours they need to assemble the team. The first two hours is assembling a team, and then the last two hours is basically kind of like a series of fight sequences. And because that storyline is just so simple, it feels in a way that that sense of grandiosity. Um, it feels, it feels a little unearned. Yes, I know that the stakes are the Earth is at risk, but it's they at risk are. in such the dumbest way. And you've seen this before, right? That in a way, you almost kind of feel inured to it. Um, and the only thing that's kind of propping it up is Zack Snyder's epic filmmaking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I, I have a couple of things. One thing I, I wanted to say is another filmmaker he reminds me a lot of is uh, David Fincher. Um, and like specifically things like zooming in on the mop or during the car, uh, one of the car crash scenes, zooming in on a single sesame seed falling off of the guy's burger. Mm. Um, those moments really reminded me of things like Panic Room where there's that like, you know, honing in almost microscopically on some little aspect of the scenery. Um but I agree with you that when, you know, the volume's always at 11, then your ears just get kind of used to that. Like, it, it feels like that that sense of, uh, I think he needs to be a lot more selective about the way that he uses slow-mo and, like, you know, hyper-focus on an object like that. Those should be moments that stay in your brain later for story reasons, as well as for the fact that they look like they could be, you know, a poster well, or a tattoo. Again, it, it it's borderline cartoonish. You know, Ryan, you, you touched on kind of the, the parody of itself. And maybe that's what he wants it to be. He wants it to be like 90s era, grim and get gritty kind of comic books with, with again, splashes of character moments. There are some great character moments. Actually, I don't even want to say great. There are some badass character moments. So I guess that's like more Zack Snyder. Like the scene where Batman crosses over the mountain 
And in this cut of the movie, they have to tell you that he crossed over the mountain. No one ever crosses the mountain. Helicopters can't land, you know. And that whole scene at the bar with the ten to $15,000 like exchange to meet Aquaman. Cool, I guess. <laughs> but I, uh... Yeah. I, again, there were moments. I, I, I want to read something I read in Vulture. I actually, normally I don't get excerpts, but this, to me, this, this puts a pin in kind of what Zack Snyder did to this movie. Snyder doesn't seem to have an evocative or nuanced bone in his body. Why should he give us a mere <laughs> glimpse of Nordic townsfolk mournfully singing as Aquaman returns to the sea when he can give us the whole song? Why simply show us the arrow of Artemis that Queen Hippolyta shoots to warn her daughter Wonder Woman about impending danger when he can depict every minute minute step of the elaborate ritual the Temescarian warriors enact to unveil the arrow, light its flame, and so on? Why give us people fighting in real time when he can give it to us in slow-mo and then, at random moments, speed ramp down so the slow-mo becomes even slower mo is he having a laugh he might as well be the wailing that suddenly pops up in the soundtrack whenever we see wonder woman certainly reaches self-parodic moments but no snyder wholeheartedly embraces his stuff and there's nothing cynical about his indulgence he believes that superheroes directly tie into our ancient myths and religious symbols and he wants to make the rest of us believe it too so i guess he's trying yeah too hard. okay that's how no, I feel. Well, so my issue with that is that um you know characters doing essentially mundane things or do you know you know doing these epic gestures that ultimately accomplish very mundane things like i, I spent a lot of time thinking about that flaming arrow for some reason like you know i mean there was there was a it was a long sequence and then wonder woman finally discovers it and she looks out in horror at you know knowing what it all what it all means and um i mean gosh but but, guys, but, but no hang on this hang on this is, but but hang on this that was so actually- this is one of those moments where had you seen like, and I'm not picking on you guys, but like Joss Whedon had that exact scene, but it was like 90 seconds. It's still fucking cool. I think wow, the, the Amazon technique of doing that, I just didn't need 10 minutes of it. So that actually was a specific example of when I said that, like, there's something that feels really novelistic to me about uh, yeah, Zack Snyder. Yeah. That, that was the example I was thinking of that, you know, that arrow gets fired and then we see her receive that information not not through language, but she actually, you know, goes to that shrine. She descends down into that part of it that I think normal mortals don't know about, right? And then she's holding up the torch and looking at those like hieroglyphs on the wall, and that's how she obtains the information. Um, you know, as a fiction writer, that's the kind of thing that I'm always trying to come up with is like, you know, how do I how do I dramatize this exposition? How do I turn this into like a story moment? And um, you know, for me, that I, I think that that is both something that like needlessly adds to the runtime, but it creates that feeling of texture and a lived-in world that has its own objects and artifacts that I do find really appealing. And that it it does remind me of things like, you know, in The Shining, the way that, you know, there are those those photos on the walls that suggest the history of the Overlook Hotel without specifically telling you what you need to know about it. Um, so that is something that I find really interesting about his style, but I also think in a four-hour movie, there are times where you kind of are like, okay, it was this absolutely necessary. You know, you also have to be respectful of your audience's time and engagement. Well, I guess for me, it's that, that, that what, what you get out of it is relatively, is a relatively small thing, right? I mean, it's basically her, the uh, Wonder Woman's mom sending Wonder Woman an email saying, hey man, bad stuff is coming. Um, And so the result of it is 
kind of, to me, feels sort of inconsequential. I mean, I know it does alert Wonder Woman that the bad guys are coming and that, you know, bad shit's coming, but we've kind of been knowing this for the past, we, the audience, have been knowing this for the past two hours. Bruce Wayne, that's the whole reason Bruce Wayne has been assembling the superhero team. And so by the time Wonder Woman figures it out or learns about it through this completely elaborate process... Um, which is cool. I mean, it's cool that the woman can shoot a flame and arrow across continents. I wish I could do that too. I can't. Um, but but it's it's giving us information that we already know, and the and and it has not only just not only is it giving us information we already know, it's wound up a hell of a lot to give well, us that information. Yeah, I mean, I actually like made the observation. I was watching. Uh, I was rewatching parts of it earlier today, and I was looking at the you know where I was in the runtime at various parts. And I, you know, uh, my partner and I had been talking about how it was kind of like the, the casino uh, heist episode of, uh, you know, of Rick and Morty, where, you know, it's just about building this team and everyone's like, you know, you son of a bitch, I'm in, um, as they as they collect the team. And then like the actual heist is like, you know, the, the last like, you know, 10 seconds or whatever. But I was like, wow, you know, it's actually like the whole first hour of the movie is establishing that there is a casino they're going to rob. <laughs> and then like the next hour is building the team, which is kind of well, excessive. to be oh, one thing I read uh, was that by the time you get to the runtime of the original theatrical cut, they haven't even shown all the characters on screen together. But the thing I did appreciate yep. that felt very Bollywood for me was I kind of like the chapter titles. I'm not, and even like when I was watching while streaming it, and I'd pause it occasionally um, because it's four hours long. I had to watch it over like four sittings. Um, even they showed the chapter breaks on the little bar at the bottom, but I I appreciated that. I was kind of I enjoyed the the, the chapter titles. It felt like episodes of a TV show, which I think that was the moment where I texted you guys and I was like, "This feels like a very expensive TV show." Well, it felt it felt mythic. I mean, those those chapter titles, um, you know, and I, I've, I've been thinking a lot about like, you know, because it's not just chapter one, chapter two. There's actually a title underneath there. And that always kind of creates this really kind of wonderful sense of anticipation. You don't know what that title portends. Um, so I, I did love the fact the way that those chapter titles kind of gave the sense of anticipation. This is an epic story that can't be contained in one single running it needs five, six chapters in order to do it. Yeah. I was often disappointed afterwards, but I did appreciate, you know, that sense of grandeur that that accompanied those uh, those individual chapters. Totally. Yeah, and not so not to belabor this point, but also like with something like the exposition moment of, you know, uh the flaming arrow and the burning temple. I guess that like what I wonder about is we already established um and I totally agree with it that like the actual story of this movie is is pretty obvious, right? Like these literal demon bad guys want to destroy the world just because, pretty much. At least that's my interpretation. So if you're not going to have those steps along the way be totally badass, what are you even doing, you know? I don't just want this story delivered to me as quickly and simply as possible yeah. because it, then it wouldn't be worth consuming. Um I just think there's a fine line between, you know, how do you select those moments and make them actually stand out even more through contrast with uh, with other more downplayed elements versus the four hour crescendo. Well, that's actually, that's, that's, really good point. Oh, I was just going to say, no, no, no the, the whole the whole thing about steps along the way, because um, mm-hmm. basically it's just collecting the mother boxes. Um, and then, you know, and then and then, of course, the bad guys successfully are able to do that. But 
in a way, it, it really comes almost at minimal cost to the good guys. You don't get a sense of progression, really, of, of, of the bad guys getting significantly stronger or more difficult as they collect those boxes, or of the good guys suffering any defeats or, right. or any, any, any real you know, new challenges as the bad guys kind of get closer to the, to the goal line. And it, that actually kind of keeps the stakes very very steady in a way and not in a good way and the stakes yeah. are like yeah you know if the bad guys you know collect all of the the computers if if dark side gets full it support the world <laughs> is going to end and then well, he gets well, the next piece and it's like yeah he's gonna don't forget if he gets if the it guy comes you guys are screwed there's no sense of like elevating stakes right and well, that well, i think is a big problem where they could have out infinity stoned marvel was spread it out over movies, over franchise building, and make the stakes get worse. And they kind of allude to that. And you can go read kind of like jo uh, Zach's outline for what the other movies were going to be with the march towards Dark Side coming to Earth and kind of uh, Batman's nightmare um, nightmares that he has, basically, in Batman v Superman and in this movie, that Dark Side eventually does win and time travel is going to be involved in the third Justice League movie. But I feel like you could have spread it out more. And I do wonder from a marketing and a business standpoint, if DC felt late to the game, like we got to get all these guys together really quick. We got to introduce all these guys now in this movie. If you think about the comparison to Avengers was most of the characters had been established in previous movies. We knew their arc. We knew who they were. Some of them had multiple adventures like Iron Man. But in this movie, remember Wonder Woman had I don't remember had her movie come out before this. So, but again, these characters weren't fully established. And so we have to spend all of our time establishing them. And even in the establishment of them, to your point there, you're not raising the stakes every time. Like should one of the mother boxes had to deal with the flash dealing with it or cyborg dealing with it and the stakes in the world getting worse. Well, one of them does have to do with cyborg. And I thought he was actually, his arc was for me, probably the strongest part mm -hmm. of the movie. And I was really shocked to learn. I was re researching this a little bit um, that in the Joss Whedon version, he's completely cut. In it. Yeah. Cause to me, mm. he was almost like the protagonist. Um, he's the one who his personal story is tied up with these mother boxes. Um, and then he also has that whole, uh, the whole story with his father, which is the highest personal feeling, emotional stakes in the movie for me. Um, so I was just really surprised that like, how could this movie even work without that? Like, well, and you yeah. could have had what I think most superhero movies have an everyman kind of character, and they didn't do that with this either. But like, Vic could have been the everyman, like, but because even when he like dives into the net, you see him in his like, you know, Gotham High School or Gotham University jacket. You know, it's just him. It's just a regular guy dealing with the pain and tragedy of his own life. Um. You could have done more of that. I thought there was a yeah. I thought there was a missed opportunity actually with him because um, we're told that when he was still you know a mortal human, he was already a super hacker and a great athlete, and you know he sort of had all of these things going for him that were already kind of like heightened. And I thought it would have been actually really interesting if both of his parents had been these high powered scientists, but he really had been more of a normal guy. And um, you know, then there's that sense of like did my dad transform me into this monster just to save me? Or was it because he kind of always wanted to improve me in some way? I think that that would have made that 
Oh, that would have been interesting. Even more powerful? Well, I mean, I, I do think it was... I would have really loved that. I, I mean, I do kind of feel... I mean, I know that, that towards the end they were trying to have like a conventional, you know, dad's asking for forgiveness. Oh, dad, I love you. No, you're dead. Um, Sort of situation. As, I, he, I uncrushes, kind of, as he uncrushes the tape. <laughs> I do I, I do kind of <laughs> yeah. like the you know the idea though that the dad only started to love his son once his son could become like a science project for him. I mean there's something really like insanely dark about that. Not where the movie went, but it was something that, you know, was kind of in the back of my mind. I think there was enough material there to kind of create that sort of strange yeah. tension between father and son that would have made their relationship truly weird rather than just sort of like conventionally dad wasn't at the, my football game i'm sad <laughs> sort of thing so, so speaking of yeah. father-son tension how did you guys feel about barry allen i actually was surprised that the thing with his father seemed to have nothing to do with the rest of the movie um because i was interested in that but then it didn't really I didn't even totally understand right. it. Um, right. it. It yeah. seems like, okay, so his dad is in prison because he's been falsely accused <laughs> of murdering his mom. And then Barry, who is a superhero already and even has a suit, wants to get some kind of degree in <laughs> forensic science to help him. It's like, why don't you try to use your superpowers to help him? That was and even at the end, he hasn't done that. I just thought that was a non sequitur kind well, of. Well, it's kind of like was... they're, they're, you, let's jam in the plot of Barry Allen. And again, those are all like existing plot points for the fanboys who know about. And that's what's frustrating. It's like you should have had a fucking Flash movie before the Justice League. Like you could have done that, and you could have handled that exposition. But no, we need to jam it in to get this movie out stat. Like that. Yeah, that was that's frustrating. They must have had more for the the, the father was played by Billy Crudup, wasn't it? Because like you don't, yeah. yeah. So they're they're definitely Doctor Manhattan, right? Doctor Manhattan. So they must have had more planned at some point that they just didn't add to the, this. No, so like when this movie, based on like the original release date, after this movie, a Flash movie was supposed to come out, and a Batman yeah, movie uh, was supposed to come. That out. explains why you hire like the A lister to play the dad who has no screen time in Justice League, right? That makes sense. Yeah, and also Wonder Woman's uh, introduction has nothing to do with the story, which again I thought was like a missed opportunity when she there. You know, there are those guys who are going to blow up all of the schoolgirls. Um, I felt like that was frustrating that we spent. I mean, that was a really cool action sequence, and then it turned out to have nothing to do with the plot of. This <laughs> oh, it's movie. introducing Wonder and Woman. I was reintroducing like, Wonder Woman. That's what it was. I mean, I haven't even seen any of these movies, and I knew who she was, so I just felt like that wasn't really. I thought that they could have come up with some sort of action-y thing for her to do that had to do with this. And I also thought that that was one of the key moments for me of feeling like my intelligence was being insulted. Like when she, <laughs> you know, she, she completely kicks ass in this situation. And then that one little girl is sitting there traumatized. And she's like, you know, are you all right, princess? And the little girl says, can I be just like you? Mm. And she says, you can be anything you want to be. And, you know, I, I think that for me, a hallmark of good storytelling is that a really good storyteller will never ask you to know less than you know. And something that we all know is that that little girl is not going to have superpowers unless she gets bitten by something radioactive. So why? <laughs> wrong universe, wrong universe. <laughs> <laughs> these, these are gods. Okay, you okay. You have noble so, descent. You know, unless she's... Unless she's bitten by a radioactive god. <laughs> Named Grant Morrison. Anyway. <laughs> no, but I mean, it just it just seemed like it was when he applies that grandeur to something that you know is false, 
that feels really icky to me. Um, but when he applies it to something that feels like it invites that kind of interrogation and subversion in the viewer's mind, that's well, where does he? Really so I want to ask Chandler, in this movie, where mm-hmm. does he do that? I mean, I actually thought that there was some of that with Cyborg. I thought that it was really interesting that one of the first things that we see Cyborg doing, um, you know, with his powers was was getting that that woman, uh, you know, basically yeah, robbing yeah, a bank yeah. himself to give that woman $100,000, right? But you're totally on his side. And there's something about, like, you know, you're entering into his perspective where he's suddenly sort of above the concerns of normal humans and the the laws of normal humans don't apply to him anymore. And it uh, was really trippy visually and, you know, really grand. But then it also kind of invites this question of, well, Cyborg gets to make his own laws. What if sometimes he he makes the wrong call? It just seemed like it immediately brought that. Well, and his dad in, the, in um, kind of the yeah. voiceover, his dad says that effectively. It's like, you can do yeah. anything you want. You can fire all yeah. the nukes. Like, you can. And it's like, yeah. no one should have that kind of power. And I think he really... I think I think Snyder is putting kind of a magnifying glass on on that in that moment. Was it, uh, but there are other times where he's not. Was he? I, so, so I'm like, maybe it wasn't intentional. So like what I was actually wondering about that, because the dad essentially says, try here's infinite power, you know, try not to be an asshole about it. Yeah. And that's <laughs> the last you kind of hear of it. But I do kind of think that there is that there should be that human tension, that human fallacy, that weakness to, you know, abuse those powers. Or to use those powers in ways that you probably that you probably shouldn't. Um, and actually, that was oppor- that was also an opportunity with Barry Allen as well. You asked what we thought about what I thought about uh, Barry Allen, and initially, you know, he's he's also a character who I, who I like because he's he's just quippy. He's a little bit more. I wouldn't say he's down to earth. He kind of falls into that Marvel mode of character where they're kind of wisecracking and they're relatable because they're wisecracking. But that's kind of. Well, also, it? he's fan- he's the fanboy. And it's funny. I, I said maybe the opportunity was with Vic. I think Vic and uh, uh, Barry are kind of mirror sides of the same coin. One's born in tragedy. Well, they both have their own fucking tragedy. But, like, he's literally the fanboy. The scene where uh, Bruce Wayne, like, finds him in the Flash cave. And, you know, the oh shit moment when he, like, sees the Batarang going by him. He turns into fanboy mode, and that's great because we're all fanboys watching this movie. Wouldn't you say that if you were next to these people, these gods? I actually, I was calling uh, Barry Zach because I didn't know what his name was for part <laughs> like of the movie. Zach, uh, like but like also uh, Zach because, Morris, or no, like Zach Snyder because he's a fanboy who loves to slow down time. <laughs> Pause for laughter. <laughs> The, the the opportunity with Barry is sort of the same thing with with um with uh the uh with Cyborg in that you know unlike Wonder Woman who's kind of was born with her powers and Superman who you know ha- always had his powers and Batman who's been at it for twenty years and is aloof and super rich um you know you kind of had that opportunity with both Cyborg and Flash to explore what happens when people who are just like people kind of suddenly elevate into the into the god tier. And, Even upgraded, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, what does that do to your personality? What does that do? You, and I know that the movie didn't really want to explore that, but again, I kind of wish that it had, because it would have created a really interesting contrast between, you know, to Chana's point, everything is epic in this movie. But what happens when you take something that mm-hmm. wasn't epic before? Some just some kid who plays football, um, just some dude whose dad is in jail, and then you kind of like suddenly up their up their abilities well, to like the that- nth degree. And that actually happened in um, the Grant Morrison Justice League run, right? Just to pr- go to the comics for a second. 
Flash and Green Lantern. And Cyborg has often been the substitute for Green Lantern because Green Lantern's mythos is like super complicated. So just get other some other super technology powered guy and make him a black human that's half robot. Um, but in the run, you have Wally West and Kyle Rayner, who are basically two like junior varsity people who have been like traded up to the NBA. And that's kind of like the the shtick of, you know, one's a complete rookie in Kyle. Um, and the other is, well, he's been around the block, but he's like a junior sidekick who just got upgraded in the flash. And I guess these are the two who are supposed to kind of play off each other. And again, we didn't get that much of it. We just got Jason Momoa saying, my man, my man. There's, I I know you haven't read the uh, Grant Morrison Justice League run Chandler, but just there's, there's, there are tiers of characters in that, you know, like Wonder Woman and Superman are kind of aloof in, I mean, not intentionally so, but they don't have much characters. They're kind of like the God tier that everyone's like, holy shit, Superman and Wonder Woman are here. And then as Robin was saying, you have kind of newer superheroes who are sort of like, what the fuck am I doing here? I don't know. And then you've got Batman who actually is a lot more grounded and he's sort of like the guy who's kind of he's kind of helping everybody out so there's there's like different roles that within this other interpretation of justice league that each superhero has and i think that's really really effective in showing them as a team and how this team works and how these personalities kind of work together which in um again in in zach snyder's version i wouldn't say i can't say that everyone has the exact same personality but there's no like real distinct role that each character plays beyond the use of their power if that makes well, sense i want to i want to ask another question kind of related and it's how do you feel about jeremy irons because you know it's nice casting with him being alfred but i felt like more often than not they relied on him being the voice of the audience versus the characters being the voice of the audience and so it felt every time Alfred said something or interacted with someone, it felt like exposition that should have just been done with the fucking characters. You know, like I, I mean, I, I was I was fine with him. I mean, for me, I just when I saw Jerry May Irons, I I just figured he's he's being well compensated for this. Like you know, <laughs> it's, it's like it's like Sir Michael Caine in Jaws of Revenge, where he's like, I haven't seen the movie, but I saw the house that movie bought, and it's very nice indeed. Um, <laughs> such a great line i love that and so I, I, that's kind of I, I like like jeremy irons you know alfred is a is a bigger character in this you need someone to deliver exposition wonderfully and jeremy irons sure can do that so um yeah i guess i guess that's my <laughs> those are my limited thoughts on on jeremy irons as, as alfred i i saw him as i saw him as humanizing batman a little bit there's actually a line where batman says i, I yeah, work for that alfred, was a good line. and i was like i thought it was both a good line and also just such a I don't know. I thought that Batman actually did have a very distinct character in this where he's kind of a self-aware asshole. Like, um, you know, that line about like his superpower being that he's rich. And then that moment, um, it seems like there are these little moments where it, it kind of is like there's this weird power discrepancy between him and Alfred, but there is actually also mutual respect. So I don't know. I kind of like I will that. say making Alfred more active in Batman's adventures because normally he's just, even in the the Michael Caine uh, version, you know, he's just mostly in kind of the background serving tea. Um, <laughs> yeah. And here he is taking an active role in controlling, you know, in controlling, you know, helping Batman out in his missions actively. He's almost like Lucius Fox in a way. Um, and I do think that is, that is, you know, that is effective. It kind of like, you know, 
makes Alfred a crucial part of that partnership rather than just a guy in the background saying, oh, Master Bruce, remember your family sort of thing. All right. So just to kind of cover some more bases, talk to me about my man, (laughs) Jason Momoa. Like, how did you other than so the comically terrible thing for me watching it this time around was oh no the tunnel is flooding <laughs> cue aquaman <laughs> and his water powers <laughs> like um yeah that was a very silly moment that felt like saturday morning cartoon <laughs> logic where it's like there's water so he's here even though he was in iceland like five minutes ago yeah um but yeah no i'm, I'm curious what, what both of you think about him i he seemed like one of the less interesting characters to me. So I, I guess I just didn't have a strong he's, actually, he's of, opinion about him. No, you're going, Roman. I, he's of all of them. And when I first saw the trailers, when Zack Snyder was fully making the movie back in the day, you'd watch the trailers and he'd be like jumping on top of the Batmobile saying, yeah, my man. And it literally <laughs> felt like my friend Ryan's alter ego when Ryan would get like really drunk and would be out at bars. Um, did, this is a different, different Ryan. Different, different For Ryan, the different record. <laughs> And uh, a fun fact, though, uh, said Ryan and I uh, have been to a bar with Ryan's boss before I knew Ryan. This Ryan. Anyway. Um, <laughs> There's so many Ryans. <laughs> My man. Um, and so he's a cartoon character of all of the characters in this movie. And uh, to be fair, Jeremy Lin, uh, I'm getting the director's name right. The, the, got wrong. The guy who did the Fast and the Furious movies. He made uh, Jeremy Wan, maybe. He made the um, Aquaman movie. Which is so oh, bad oh. it's good because it's a fucking I've heard it's Yeah, fun. because it's a fucking yeah. cartoon. And so Aquaman is the cartoon character of the movie. Yeah. But he's a Zack Snyder I... extreme cartoon character. Yeah. The thing that I liked about him was actually the thing with the Triton. I thought that that was just like a, a small piece of visual storytelling mm. that really worked where you see him, you know, refuse the call. Which, you know, feel it felt a little bit like ticking the box, like, you know, in the screenplay. But then later when he comes back and he has the trident with him, I was just like, yeah, I really like that. We, yeah, we don't have to have a whole conversation about how he changed his mind. We just understand now that he has. It's a little Han Solo sort of mo- it's like a little Han Solo sort of moment when he comes back with the, the Millennium Falcon. Um and shoots yeah, out, shoots the time. Totally. Actually, J- uh, Roman, I just want to make sure you have your Asians right. It's just so Justin Lin Justin is the Lin, guy who you. Justin Lin is the guy who directed uh, the Fast and the Furious movies, as well as a very good one called Better Luck Tomorrow. Um, and then James Wan is, kind of, I think he's Australian. He wrote, directed Saw, but he also directed uh, uh, Aquaman. So thank you, Justin Lin and James Wan, two different Asians from do two different parts of the world. This has been our recurring segment, Better Know an Asian. Right. <laughs> um, I've always been kind of conflicted with with Aquaman, uh, just as a character because he doesn't really do much except he's basically Namor uh, without the personality, um, and he doesn't really, you know, his powers aren't much beyond breathing underwater, uh, talking to fish, and um, you know, being kind of Atlantic yeah. women fall in love. Can, with can him? I nitpick really quick? <laughs> Hang on. Okay, so Atlanteans, this like age-old society, they have to make air bubbles every time they want to talk to each other. That seemed inconvenient. <laughs> that seems really inconvenient. Like, what if you just want to say, "Hey, man, how are you? Nice. Like, I like your fins today." You know, do you create an air bubble? What if they're like across the the you know like the like some trench, what or something like that? How do you how do you shout in Atlantean? You can't. My 
My theory is that they needed that for the boom mic. So. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! But, but no, you know, Aqu- I mean, the Aquaman movie was fun, and again, he's the cartoon character, and I well, love I I have seen Aquaman. You know the you know kind of going back to our Grant Morrison love affair. Like he's the only guy I've seen use seen um like use Aquaman kind of creatively. Um, you know, like the fact that Aquaman can talk to fish telepathically he's able to kind of like latch into the parts of your brain that can that you've inherited from your ancestors from, right, right and then like do things like he can really talk to fish telepathically. oh yeah, oh, yeah. That's, like, that's like super friendly that's like Chandler. childhood cartoon stuff dude wait why wouldn't he be able to talk to fish telepathically he has to this like, oh my but God. there's even a joke I, I don't remember if it was in the weed or the snyder cup but there's literally a joke about so you talk to fish in the movie I think that that wasn't in this movie because I think I remember that, but it's possible it went past me. I don't think it was in this movie. They never really brought it up or used it. And it's kind of hard to use that creatively when everyone's on land. So, but there have been times when he, (laughs) when, like I said, when Aquaman has used that ability creatively, like when he's, again, when he's latched into somebody's brain and like given them a seizure, like he apparently can like, like that was sort of like an expansion of that character's powers that's what always what I like. I like it when like writers, you know, you have like the set powers that these characters have, but then you have writers, some writers who are very good at kind of pushing that into new territory or applying it in ways you wouldn't have thought before. And you know, obviously that doesn't happen in in the JLA. In fact, it kind of rarely happens in in movies. I find people are the writers tend to be very conservative about what they show of these superheroes, which is always a little bit uh, disappointing to me. So Chandler, I have one last question for you. Um, sure. And it's around the idea of suspension of disbelief, right? So uh, the kind of the example I can start with before we get into the question about the movie is, you know, look, hey, kid gets bit by a radioactive spider. He gets spider powers. Okay, I get it. I'll go with you. I've suspended my disbelief. But then he can't literally fly around the w- world backwards to make time go backwards, right? Like that's a little well, too far. So my question is this. <sighs> When they talk about dark side and hundreds of thousands of worlds, did you need hundreds of thousands of worlds or could a hundred or a thousand worlds? Because here, here's why, like, I this is the one thing I got hung up on. Like, my knowledge of, I've suspended my disbelief that all of these things can happen. But knowing that the universe is vast and life is pretty rare, like hundreds of thousands of worlds felt like, like an extreme Zack Snyder sort of thing versus just saying, eh, you know, I conquered a hundred worlds. I mean... Yeah, like, like I again, you know, that was the part of the movie that really made me think of things like Lord yeah. of the Rings, um, you know, where it felt like it was supposed to be on this scale that, uh, to me, like hundreds of thousands of worlds, I don't like literalize that in my mind. I, I really think of that more as this sort of metaphor for their ultimate mm. power. But I mean, like, I do think that I, as, you know, a viewer or reader, I, I don't tend to be most powerfully drawn toward uh toward stories where the you know the antagonist is incomprehensibly evil to that degree like i just don't tend to find that that interesting i i tend to find it more interesting when you know the bad guy has some kind of a motive that seems even if they're not literally human themselves that there is there's some sort of humanity in they don't think they're the villain they don't think they're the villain yeah, exactly. That they they think that you know that they've been treated unjustly in some way. And actually, something that I also heard was new to this movie was that um, Steppenwolf, uh, right? 
that originally he didn't have any particular motivation other than that he's evil. But here, at least, he's trying to suck up to his boss and get back <laughs> into his boss's good graces. So even though his boss is pure evil, which is not that interesting to me, I did like that he has, there is a little bit more humanity to, to his situation. Um, so more than the hundreds of thousands of worlds, I just wanted... I wanted more texture to like, what is it that they're trying to accomplish? You know, like, what is it that, like, how do they tell the story to themselves? What is it about their culture or their worldview that like inspires this? Like, it just felt so silly and Had you seen, um, had you seen his two prior, uh, Zack Snyder's two prior, uh, DC movies, Man of Steel? No, I have, I have not seen either of them. I'm actually more interested in. Yeah, you should, because Man of Steel has a lot of things where, people myself included get upset that he doesn't get superman but to your point of textured villains they get progressively worse and worse in Zack snyder's well let's just call it his trilogy because in the first Mm -hmm. movie man of steel it's another kryptonian that's not ruining anything but it's another kryptonian who didn't land in kansas basically and his worldview makes sense for the most part in the batman v superman lex luther is the villain effectively uh played by um Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, yes, exactly. That's uh, <laughs> Jesse, Jesse Eisenberg. Jesse, Jesse Eisenberg. And, yeah. Yeah, Jesse um, Eisenberg. And while the plot is batshit crazy, even and to be to to be clear, in Batman v Superman, Batman's kind of the villain too. But you, I don't agree with how they landed on the conclusion of villainy. But I get it. I get the motivations a little bit more. And I don't know. Even yeah, yeah. I just um. I think the best superhero movies have a believable villain, be it Loki, be it Killmonger and Black Panther. And I just I couldn't even get behind Steppenwolf and like wanting to please daddy like the Donald Trump narrative doesn't work here. Sorry. Can I ask you why? Why? Why didn't it, it work for you? I, you know, there was a moment in some of the flashbacks where I thought Steppenwolf might have been a human originally because they had some other guy that got his horn snapped off at the beginning. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. But there's not... He's just some random powerful guy who's checking in with his boss. And it reminded me, actually, every time he talked to Dasad, I was like, why isn't he just talking to Darkseid? It kind of reminded me of when Darth Vader's talking to the Emperor, like in mm-hmm. Empire Strikes Back. It made me think of that yeah, too. Yeah, but... Uh, you knew there was something beneath the surface with Darth Vader. He was so mysterious and so powerful. And Steppenwolf was just an angry CGI roided villain. Right. So yeah. I, I, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't connect with them in the, in the, I didn't, it was just in the comics and the cartoon, Steppenwolf was actually much more, much more of a human. He's, mm. he's basically just a dude. And, and I actually kind of feel like that would have been a better decision to your point, Chandler. I do like that Steppenwolf, you know, needs to get back in the good graces of Darkseid. You see why he's doing it. But at the same time, the fact that he is so unstoppable almost kind of like distances you from him. Had they made him, you know, I think probably more human looking, somebody with kind of, uh, with, you know, who, who just didn't look like this this over-designed monster, I think that could have gone a long well, way into like humanizing him quite literally. Well, the parademons, the parademons yeah, I mean, were be... actually scarier for me in so many things. And I do wonder in that kind of leveling up thing with the mother boxes, like, imagine the scene at Themyscira where that whole thing was just with parademons and take Steppenwolf out of the equation completely. And Steppenwolf doesn't come until chapter two, but or, you know, maybe they're talking to him or something. But like you kind of level up the bosses like it, there's just so many more interesting things you could have done to 
unveil Steppenwolf, but they just kind of threw them all at you at once. I think it would be really interesting if he literally were a human who got in touch with these aliens, because then that motivation actually makes even more sense to me. Like there would be something that would feel, I mean, not that I would do this if I got in touch with like homicidal aliens from another dimension, but you know, there would be something that would feel like, you know, you have this unique power among humans that you can like, you know, you can bring this evil force in. I think that that would be more engaging certainly you know than just like yeah i agree i think it's really distancing that he's literally a monster and he was you know in in the original cut in the joss whedon cut he was more human like and they really cgi video gamed him up for this one well i think if he's going to be a monster make him a monster i think that that was a good decision but i actually think that what if he was like literally some guy with like a ham radio i mean this is terrible i don't like this idea at all actually but you know he's some guy with some kind of technology that he's created that's that's given him access to like you know direct these aliens back to our planet that would make him feel well th- this is where like, the flashback actually really like i got excited about it for this cut yeah i could have sworn he was like one of the humans wearing like a helmet interesting and i don't know i haven't done enough like online research like that would have been really interesting you he got like distorted into this exactly, monster over time. Exactly. So I like that idea too. I think that that is also superior to what they what they actually dramatized. Even if it's supposed to be like an Easter egg, I think that they should have actually made that part of his character in a way that was visible. Let me say, if you wanted to go yeah. just pure evil, I'm, I was actually kind of surprised that Zack Snyder didn't use so Chandler. There's another villain that uh, Darkseid, another henchman of Darkseid, called Granny Goodness, and she's this Ooh. yeah. And she's this kind of like this old woman who's basically in charge of training all of the top soldiers in that in that land, and she has uh, a group of women that three three or Furies, four women they call the Furies, and they all have very distinct looks, very distinct person. There's one woman named Lashina who has these whips. There's this Ooh. other woman who's sort of like the strong man sort of character. So they it's they're they're very very colorful looking and their personalities are very distinct and granny goodness uh is a real is a real treat as well a she was she and was I'm, in some of the scenes like, she was uh, there the but she knows yeah. i mean like she for me like she's i know like steppenwolf she's very evil like she's older yeah but she's but well she's evil but also pure evil but kind of in this interesting riveting way in the stockholm syndrome yeah. like brainwashing yeah. kind of way yeah yeah she has yeah like like her like the soldiers she trains are loyal to her but they're also kind of enslaved you know, it's 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 this really kind of unhealthy psychological relationship she has with these, with her soldiers, um, and it's it's fascinating. But again, and this is this is this is what's frustrating with DC's execution of a quote unquote cinematic universe versus Marvel. You could have done all of this, like you literally could have said, "We're not making a Justice League movie for ten years, and we're going to plant these threads. We're going to have a Flash movie to establish this weird guy. We're going to have a Cyber, you know, and actually the the Flash and Cyber were supposed to be in the same movie." Um, you could have done the New Gods movie, which now Eva, Eva, Eva DuVernay is making. Um, you could have done all of these things and established this drumbeat in this march to this massive conflict on Earth where Earth's mightiest heroes need to come together and maybe meet for the first time. And again, is that the Marvel playbook? Sure. But we could have had more of this. Like everything we're saying was missing was because it was rushed. And in a four hour movie, it was rushed, you know? Yeah, I mean, I did think that, like, with Cyborg and his dad, I, you know, um, they wouldn't have necessarily had to do exactly what I was describing, where, like, you know, there's more of a a conflict about feeling like he wasn't living up to his dad's expectations. But whatever they were going to do, I I thought that, 
Yeah, exactly. Um, no, but I thought I thought that they they managed to get the you know both through the performances and through Zack Snyder's direction, like that you know they they managed to cram in like an emotional arc there that I did think was effective. But I thought that it could have been even more, like it could have been richer. It did almost feel like this was kind of meant to be Cyborg's movie, but they had so many other like lead characters that like you know he didn't end up getting quite as much. His conflict didn't get quite as much screen. Do you do you yeah. feel that way? I so I was just kind of wondering, like, do we? Because I I was most interested in Cyborg and his father as well. But do you do we feel that way? Because that's really kind of the only real human relationship in this entire four hour movie. Like, like we see it and like, oh yeah, you know, because it it falls the same. You solved it. That's yeah, it's, it basically <laughs> just hits the same beats that you know the 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 dad's not at the talent show or the football game and i'm mad at you dad and oh dad's dead oh i love you you know sort of thing it's you we've seen this movie play out before so if we were to extract that put that in its own movie i think we would probably be kind of mocking it for its simplicity it's just that in this movie it feels a lot more emotionally complex because i guess it does some like hat tipping to emotional complexity i don't think that like I, I I would not suggest extracting Cyborg from this movie. I actually right. think that this is almost more like this is the Cyborg movie because Cyborg is part mother box, which I think is like also another thing that that seems like more nuanced than a lot of uh, a lot of stuff in this film is that you know his superpowers come from this source of evil. He's part he's part mother box now. You know that's the technology that his father used to create him. So it seems like his connection i mean he buries the the box in his own grave which i thought was just a totally awesome image um you know i i thought that like his connection to this story just felt deeper and more personal than the other characters so i wouldn't make it like you know a whole right. film about his relationship with his father and then this i would have it be like just expand it a little well, bit but, but make it more about the mother he is part mother box and there's something interesting so there's exactly. the there's the galactic portion of cyborg it, which is Mother Box mm-hmm. and Dark Side and all of these things. And all it could be like Dark Side and the Mother Box is calling to him. And then there's the human side of him pulling him back to the light. Yeah. And and in order to like make time for that, I would I would probably drop some stuff like, you know, some of the slow-mo, <laughs> like Wonder Woman's introduction, uh, the scene where Aquaman rescues some guy from a boat. But you, you, know, you would have done all those in other movies. Like... That, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Because exactly. by the Although I Go will ahead. say, oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, no, no, you can finish no, your point. Like, no, no, it's just going to, it's just like then, because then it, the payoff of this movie is great and you meet this cool new character. It can be the cyborg movie because you don't need it to be mm-hmm. the Diana movie, the Wally or the Barry movie, the even the yeah. Batman movie. Like well, the one thing I will say that I enjoyed about Batman's motivations are, and again, Batman v Superman is also a dumpster fire of a movie, but it's Batman is literally doing all of this to atone for his sins from the past movie. Like he was the asshole who effectively got Superman killed. Yeah. I like that. That's established in this as well. Like I understood why he was, why he was acting the way that he was, even, even though I haven't seen that movie, I know the basic idea Mm -hmm. of it. And one of the, um, there's a bunch of scenes that have been cut and I, I'm go watch the other two Zack Snyder movies before you go watch like the few scenes that, Joss Whedon shot to kind of like tighten his version of the movie and get it to two hours. But one Mm -hmm. of the really great scenes in 
Joss Whedon's movie is the opening scene is like found, not found footage, but like, like an online video of Superman rescuing some kids, not because it looks cool, but it's like Superman literally interacting with these kids who want to take a quick video. And then that's like before. And then the next scene is after, and you show like the black Superman flag all over the world because we're all mourning that he's dead. And Mm. it establishes the before and after scenario of the world. And Versus in this movie, it's, hey, we're going to show you that thing that happened. And we're going to show you the shout ring around the world. And I just, again, it's just like, I I don't mind seeing Snyder's fully realized vision. I just think Snyder's fully realized vision wasn't going to be a four hour movie. I think he could have been tighter, but now he only got one shot to show every little thing he was thinking about. Oh, one other thing. This is like not directly related to anything, but I did want to say, um, Although I thought that those other scenes of like, you know, Aquaman rescuing someone, Wonder Woman rescuing someone, those felt unnecessary. The, the thing that I did like uh, with uh, with the Flash character was, um, for one thing, I thought that the scene where he saves the young woman from the car wreck was was very Soon beautiful. to be his girlfriend like, and wife, love of his life, Iris Allen. Oh, is that who that's yeah. going to be? Yeah, like, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. That, I mean, I, yeah. obviously they have an instant attraction. Yeah. Um, so I, I really just thought that that was, you know, just a beautiful scene. I actually rewatched it just because I liked it so much when I was sort of skipping through the movie, like rewatching a few things in advance of this podcast. Um, and, and then the other thing that I really liked about him was, you know, I said before that I was like jokingly calling him the Zach character because he's a, a fanboy who slows down time. But I did think it was really poignant and, and well done that like, you know, we, we see him, we see him rescuing her at the beginning. That's really memorable. And then, you know, we see him sort of developing those powers. And then the very last thing that he does is that like the, the sort of superpower that the movie has had of, of being able to like, you know, slow everything down throughout, like he actually like pushes that beyond the limit and like, uh, you know, saves, saves the day by like undoing this thing that happened. And I just felt like that was so, Knowing, you know, knowing that Zach was mourning the loss of his daughter, like it just felt like there was some sort of, I mean, maybe that was already exactly what he was planning to do when he was originally shooting the movie, but it did feel like it it captured something that felt poignant and actually meaningful that I almost never get from like an action movie sequence, like at the end of a superhero film. So I just wanted to like throw that out there that I actually did think the way that his power connects with the filmmaking technique that is being used throughout and that like, you know, with that sort of larger thematic thing, just it, it just felt like that really worked. And I thought it was, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if it was totally intentional since Zack Snyder uses slow-mo in every single <laughs> thing that he makes ever. But in this movie, it felt tied You're making me want to me, watch so. the Zack Snyder Flash movie now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, Roman, let me just ask you something. What are we talking about next week? Uh, it's Moon Knight and Karnak. <laughs> Haven't we already read this? <laughs> we have not. No, no, no. Next week we're we're talking about Moon Knight and Karnak, specifically Warren Ellis's run on those two characters. And you know, you talk about reimagining uh, superheroes. Well, if you ever have like a third tier stale superhero, you would call Warren Ellis and have him you know give back his up spin the on dumpster for, truck full of for, 
back up the dumpster stuck for full money, have him give his take for three or four issues. That was, of course, speaking of wanting to rewind things, that was, of course, before Warren Ellis himself got me too So we are going to talk next week about Moon Knight and about Karnak. Warren Ellis's uh, four-issue run on Moon Knight, his six-issue run on Karnak, or is it the other way around? And we're also going to address uh, some of Warren Ellis's uh personal Character issues flaws. specifically yeah uh, yeah you know i mean just you know his, his his the the way he um he he used his power to take advantage of of women uh sexually and and psychologically and how that kind of plays into our reading of what he's what he's written 